Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, as Tom Keen would say, this is the discussion of the morning. It is Merger Monday. AT&T spinning off its media assets and Discovery going to merge with those, creating a pretty, pretty big media company. Uh, fortunately, we have two of the absolute top analysts on Wall Street to chat about this. And fortunately for us, they work at the same firm, so it's easy to get them on together. Michael Nathanson and Craig Moffat, they are founding partners at Moffat Nathanson. Craig, let me start with you. Boy, what does this say about AT&T strategy over the last several years to transform itself into, I guess, a media company? It's a big about face, isn't it? Boy, it sure is. Um, this is, and thank you for having us on. Uh, this is this is a complete capitulation strategically, um, but it, but in some ways you have to give them some credit. It, it is rare that a management team is willing to admit so openly that they made a mistake and they've got to to retrench. Usually, you. You require a changeover in the management team, and while it was Randall Stevenson that that was at the helm when these deals were made, John Stanky was very much in the the co-pilot seat and and advocated for both of these deals. And so to see him changing uh, his mind, it's an enormous loss of value for AT and T shareholders to the tune of more than a hundred billion dollars lost. Um, but I but I, I guess you do have to give them some credit for at least <laughs> acknowledging they made a mistake and reversing. So how are, I mean, that's amazing. Let's just go through those deals if we could. Uh, Michael, can you can you sum it up for us? What did Stanky and Stevenson buy and um, what are they able to salvage now? Well, what they bought, and thanks for having us on, what they bought was Turner Cable Networks. And Craig and I would always say to you, the businesses at Turner with TBS and TNT were the, were the most at risk from Netflix, right? Those are entertainment networks, a lot of repeat content that was easily replaced by on-demand SVOD. So Turner got a lot worse more quickly. And then HBO, you know, I'll blame them on HBO. They've done the right thing, but HBO really never aggressively expanded into the, you know, into non-U.S. markets. So the guys at AT&T had to basically reinvest in HBO, change the way the company went to market, um, so to me, it really comes down to the basic cable bundle and also Time Warner is really, I would say, starving out of HBO to get the to get the asset in in a competitive position. And now that's what they're doing, but it's going to be expensive. Craig, and, and by the way, I was including DirecTV in that as well. Oh, sorry, remember, right, exactly. Yep. They bought DirecTV for sixty seven billion dollars two years earlier um, and they just sold that for about 15 or 18. Yeah, it's just extraordinary, you know, the value destruction there uh, from this management team. Uh, Michael, can the new company really compete against Netflix and Disney? Can they be a global leader? You know, I think they can. Um, I think there'll be three or four global companies. HBO's content is as good as anyone's. Um, the weakness they've had is is not being able to, to move into international markets. That's going to change. The weakness they've had is the under the inability to invest, and now they're investing. So I don't think it's crazy. I don't think it's crazy. They they could be a top three global S five powerhouse. I really do believe that. And then what about but, the telecom? But, 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 yeah, sorry. No, go on. The question go on. Is, is is that a good business or not? Like 
you know, our debates with you over, over the years has been, well, they could be a top three company, but what's the cash flow profile in SVOD? It's a lower cash sharing business, right? It's just not as attractive as a business as they once had. And so that was going to be my, my second part of the answer. The media business they once had, you mean? Yeah, like where, the, where they're moving from is not going to be, as, you know, where they're going is not as good as where they started from. I wonder about the telecom business because investors are voting the shares up today. And I guess that's because, what, they're going to have more money to spend on the 5G rollout. They're going to be able to pay down some of their monstrous pile of debt. Um, you know, wh why do you think the market likes this? You know, um, I, I think partly the market likes because it likes it because they're getting back um, a, a sexy asset, assuming that the shareholders directly get back shares in the new co or the new discovery. Uh, but you do have to scratch your head a little bit because, you know, remember before this, AT&T was a, uh, a company that paid a 6.7% dividend yield and had a growth kicker in HBO um, or HBO Max. Now it's going to be a company that has about a 4.5% dividend yield and doesn't have a growth kicker. The, the business stub that's left behind in wireless and wireline Let's remember that that is a business with negative service revenue growth and falling EBITDA. So it's not exactly like you're getting a growth company. You're just getting a declining company that now has a much lower dividend yield. Um, I'm not sure that's going to work for investors um, as they sort of go through all the math. Craig, do you expect AT&T? I mean, it's got to be really gun shy here, given what's happened over the last several years. Is their strategy just to hunker down with the assets that they have, do you think? They don't have any choice. Um, they they, they they have no money, right? I mean, they're levered at four <laughs> times EBITDA, and and the rating agencies have said the downgrade threshold is three seven. So, um, so they're hanging on for dear life. And and while this will help them pay down forty three billion dollars of debt, um, it will also offload cash flows that supported more than forty three billion dollars of debt. So, yeah. so this doesn't help them delever at all. What about the discover? Uh, um the discovery side. Discovery? What That's am I right. saying? That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. What are they going to be able to do? I mean, they, they, to me, it looks like they come here with an inferior, like, who cares about home and garden TV? You're getting HBO. Um, what is Zaslav going to be able to do with this business? Well, it's funny you say that because that is a, a point of view of HGTV and food of a, coast, a coastal elite. You know, I've always <laughs> had that point of view, too. It's like, who's watching those networks? But they're watched by a ton of young women or, or women in this country. So what Zaz is going to try to do is protect his basic cable network businesses and, and create, you know, an alternative bundle with TBS, TNT, CNN, and all those discovery channels, right? So that's one thing. And he's going to try to create an add-on bundle with HBO Max. Think what Disney's done with Hulu, ESPN, and Disney+. Plus. Same kind of idea. Assets are not the same, but I think the idea is like we can replicate parts of the bundle with our own mini bundles here. Very interesting, and I'm I'm so glad that uh, Paul got you guys to come in today because it's uh, or come on today, I should say, not in obviously, but uh, because it's such a fascinating discussion, and because you are the experts from whom we really uh, can learn all of this um, stuff. Pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Michael Nathanson and Craig Moffat, founding partners at Moffat Nathanson on the AT&T Discovery merger. I hate the word merger. It's always one buying the other. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.
Let's get over to Aaron Kallenberg right now, CEO of the Wild Alaskan Company. And as we talk about ESG, and um, as so many people have seen the Netscape movie documentary Seaspiracy, uh, you, you, you got to wonder about um, wild-caught fish. It's delicious. It's the best, obviously, but um, is it sustainable? Aaron Kallenberg, as I said, joins us. Um, how do you make that sustainable, Aaron? You know, wherever we see um, big industrial fishing, it, it always dis- seems to decimate the ecosystem. Hey, yeah, happy day, everybody. This is Aaron, um, just a little background on Wild Alaskan. You know, we are a monthly seafood membership service. We ship a curated box of wild-caught seafood, sustainable seafood to members across the country. Um, you know, and the sustainability um, topic, you know, especially around, you know, the documentary you mentioned is one that's near and dear to my heart and the Kallenberg family. Um, you know, you basically... How do you do, how do, you do it, Aaron, sustainably? I mean, um, yeah. Y- you know, it's obviously it's the, it's the best for eating, and I, I want fish, crabs, prawn that's wild caught, salmon especially. Right. But I'm, I'm worried about the, the yeah. ecosystem. Yeah, the way you do it is you do it the way Alaska has done it with a constitutional mandate that was written into the state constitution that mandates a sustainable yield. You do that with the subsequent enforcement of that mandate across the entire industry. Um, the thing about Alaska, it's the largest um, sustainably managed fishery in the world. It's quite different than the rest of the world. In, in fact, um, notably absent from the documentary that you mentioned there was any mention of Alaska or sustainable management practices, the governance, the enforcement, and the culture. Um, the reason that Alaska wrote that into their constitution is prior to statehood, the fisheries were essentially being mismanaged, um, you know, by the federal management. And the state of Alaska understood that in order to uh, maintain or increase the economic viabilities of the fisheries, they needed to protect the fish. If you take care of the fish, the fish will take care of you economically. So they put in the strongest standards for sustainable fisheries management, and they're now are what considered the global gold standard for sustainable fisheries management. Um, and so, you know, contrary to popular belief, Alaska is not decimating the environment or the fish populations. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that if global fisheries were to adopt these practices, which are codified into law in Alaska, you'd have a quite different global fishery. Aaron, talk to us about how your business changed during the pandemic. It seems like we hear from a lot of uh, retailers that their online sales went through the roof and we're seeing boxes on everybody's doorstep. How did it impact your business? Yeah, there's no doubt, you know, the pandemic has been a global tragedy, but for Wild Alaskan, um, you know, specifically, there's no doubt, you know, our business has increased by 5x, you know, um, we're seeing it on two fronts. We're seeing consumer demand for, uh, you know, healthy eating, you know, especially in a post-pandemic increase. But in addition, you know, so many other e-commerce companies actually had supply chain disruptions, you know, uh, importing um you know, food from outside the United States. One of the great things about Wild Alaskan is we're a fully U.S.-based supply chain, so we didn't have those disruptions. So we were able to actually uh, yep. continue to service the domestic market. Um, and, you know, that, in addition to the demand, allowed us to really pull ahead. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Um, super cool uh, business idea there. I think it's like $130 a month, and then you get 
fresh caught, sustainably caught, probably the most important part, but I'm sure also incredibly juicy and delicious fish, crabs, prawn, etc. from Wild Alaskan Company. Aaron Kallenberg is the CEO and talking to us about, you know, why how they do it in Alaska, Paul, is different from um, how... You see it yeah, done I didn't in other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't, didn't know either. that that it was you know codified into that state law, but uh, you know that's a really interesting aspect to to their business. Absolutely, and and important, right? Because especially if you spend any time on yep. the sea, um, you 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 want these cultures to thrive. This is Bloomberg. Now let's bring in. Greg Hahn, he is president and chief investment officer at Winthrop Capital Management. They have uh, almost $3 billion in assets under management. And Greg, I want to first get your, um, your, your concerns for this market. I mean, we have heard a lot of inflation concerns over the last few days. Then we saw this, you know, Bitcoin thing blow up again. It looks like maybe, uh, deflation concerns, at least deflation of the speculative bubble, um, maybe first, uh, first and foremost, front and center here. How do you look at it? So our base case uh, for the economy right now is that the vaccine will be effective in controlling the spread of the virus. The, the economy will reopen. We'll see accelerated growth. We still believe that that's the case. It's not a straight line up, um, and, we're, and we're seeing that. So the labor market's causing a little bit of um, anxiousness. Um, CPI, obviously, is, the, is headline news with inflation picking up. This actually is a scenario that the Fed wants. The Fed was looking for accelerated growth and increased inflation. So now we've got it. The question is whether it's going to be sustained inflation or whether this is just a short-term hiccup. But right now, I think the real concern is navigating the structural issues that we're dealing with in the capital markets. All right, Greg. So assuming that this inflation is more transitory than perhaps, you know, more longer term and, and problematic, what are some of the sectors that you guys are looking at right now? So the uh, dance, dance with the girl that brought you right to the to the dance, and that's the the tech stuff. The large cap tech is Microsoft, Alphabet. Um, we we still like those, and I think the, there's a catalyst behind it. Is there's these are heavy cash, and so there's catalysts for stock buybacks and increased dividends. Um, plus, we like the fundamentals. Um, on the Chinese side, we still like Tencent and Alibaba. Tencent, we think, is just a hidden gem in this market and um, we still like the financials but i'm hesitating a little bit we have a steep yield curve you're going to see stock buybacks on the financials including jp morgan bank america and goldman um but that and we, that has some legs to it it's not the same kind of growth that we're going to see in the large cap tech though so you really see large cap tech then coming back with a vengeance from the lull that we've seen uh in the end of the second half yeah these are great end of the first half sorry yeah. yeah, these are great business models. These huge margins, and it, these they have global reach. So all the noise around antitrust and and that I mean it's it's legitimate, but it's noise. It, uh, these we 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 think that they, these are companies are sophisticated enough to move through it, um, and some of the products that are coming out, Microsoft's product suite is amazing. Um, there's 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 still room for growth here. All right, Greg, we saw on some of those tech names, um, you know, the companies report generally really, really strong numbers, yet the stock didn't react. And that, you know, caused a lot of investors to say, uh-oh, is this tech trade, is this growth story trade over? Is, is it really a cyclical driven, maybe even a small cap market? How did you view earnings and, and the stock's responses? 
so we we separate we kind of have to separate the the tech space into two different categories. There's large cap and then there's small cap. And that whole small cap tech space has got it, I mean it's it's overvalued. It's there's valuation is the biggest issue in this this whole space. And then when you when you kind of sort through what's going on in the IPO market, you look at what's happening in the recovery basket as as um, COVID affected industries recover. There is an alternative, and that's part of what we saw was a shift uh, moving into some of the cyclicals or value-oriented parts of the market and away from tech. That the, the place we're focused on, we're not focused in that small-cap tech space. We're focused really in, in the large-cap where you've got sustained business models. And you don't think that the valuations are too high? I mean, they're not off the charts <laughs> if I look at the NYSE FANG index, but I do see 45 you know, um, times earnings. Look, I, there, there's no question by historic standards they're high. Um, however, studies show that in periods of aggressive monetary and fiscal stimulus, we will see extended valuation multiples. I, I, I we're hanging our hat on that. I, I think there's no other way to look at it other than to say is is okay. We've got this stimulus in the market. It's going to support these valuations for the time being. Can these valuations now handle an increase in interest rates? That's I think that's really going to be the question. If if we see accelerated inflation, what will happen to the market? Do you know that this that all makes sense to me, Greg? The the interesting call I think is large cap Chinese tech because it's such an opaque, uh, yeah, you know, universe, right? I mean, you can't see in. You don't know what the Communist Party is going to do, and that's a little bit riskier. It is. There's authoritarian capitalism against Western capitalism, and this is a much longer conversation. I won't weigh it down here, but these are companies that do have um, audited financial statements. They do comply with international standards for audits. The, the issue, though, is we, they won't let auditors in to actually examine the books. That's really what I think the, the issue for the exchanges are for Chinese stocks trading in the United States. But that's why Hong Kong is so important to China, in our opinion. And we see um, the big banks still acted there. Goldman Sachs, overnight there was a story hiring 300 people in China and Hong Kong, uh, the biggest ever hiring spree for the big investment bank there. Um, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Really fascinating to get your insight, and especially as we see these these markets bounce around like this. Greg Hahn is president and chief investment officer at Winthrop Capital Management, talking to us about their... um, Sticking with a large yeah. cap tech stocks, uh, the the Fang stocks, so to speak, but also interested um, still in large cap Chinese tech holdings, including Tencent and Alibaba, as well as the financials, as the yield curve, steep yield curve, is helpful to them. This is Bloomberg. Now let's get over to Mark Dowding. I told you we're going to have the CIO at Blue Bay Asset Management join us. He is here to talk about his outlook for, I guess, Mark, um, inflation is probably the the biggest um, front and center concern for investors right now. Whether you're worried that it's going to come on quickly or whether you're worried about uh, um, a popping of the speculative, speculative bubble, um, where do you stand on the inflation concern? Well, good morning. Uh, so, so thanks for the, for the question. I, I guess I'd firmly be in the camp that um, markets are being rather complacent around uh, the nature of inflation here. Uh, obviously, the, the, the narrative from the Fed has been that uh, 
inflation is going to be transitory. But um, the reality is that next month's CPI is likely to be up again as further base effects drop out. We've got a, a negative from May 2020 that will drop out the data series. So inflation will go up again next month. And so I think the inflation signals will continue to flash red for a while. It wouldn't surprise me if the um, the market's complacency around the, uh, the transitory narrative ends up being tested. And certainly from my perspective, I reckon that uh, you'll end up seeing inflation end this year closer to 3% rather than 2%, which is considerably more than the Fed is currently discounting. All right, Mark, let's look within the fixed income markets. One of the areas, or just investing in general, one of the areas of real growth is ESG, investing, environmental, social governance. And I've heard that term a lot. We hear it a lot in the equity markets. On the fixed income markets, I guess we're starting to hear more about green bonds. Is that something that factors into your portfolio? Yeah, so I think we're all hearing a lot more about ESG. And the reason for that, frankly, is our clients really care. They, they care about ESG outcomes uh, as stewards of um, uh, financial assets. Um, and ultimately, I think we're seeing increasingly that uh, those issuers that deliver better ESG performance do end up delivering uh, better investment performance. Uh, certainly in the credit world, uh, if you're a better ESG performer, you end up being a bit more credit worthy, uh, ultimately speaking. That said, we're on, the, on the question of green bonds, I think the, um, the, 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 this is a bit of a double edged sword, actually, when we speak about green bonds, because green bonds certainly have got a place where the issuance uh, which occurs wouldn't otherwise have come about if those green bonds weren't issued. But a lot of the time, what we're actually starting to see is a lot of issuers just cashing in on a trend um, by tapping into um, uh, an area where there's hot demand to get a cheaper financing cost, where uh, actually the bonds that they're issuing um, aren't necessarily changing the actions of the issuers. A lot of the, um, uh, the, the, the projects that are being sort of financed would have gone ahead anyway. Uh, so actually the green bond issuance isn't making such a difference. So I think for us at Blue Bay, uh, we, we would be saying that the, the, the reality of ESG as a fixed income investor, it's not really about green bonds. It's really about taking an active approach uh, to ESG analysis, integrating ESG considerations into your portfolios, and actually engaging with issuers to try and um, uh, really drive ESG outcomes and the bend uh, issuer behavior. You know, speaking of game changers, you've got the ESG theme over the last few years that has been so prevalent. I, I think the other one has to be cryptocurrency, digital finance. Of course, it's seen in a, in a darker light. H how do you look at, um, you know, we just had the European Investment Bank issuing digital bonds on Ethereum. I mean, that's going to tell you that it's pretty mainstream now, but uh, people still are concerned in, in a risk, from a risk perspective when they look at it. Yeah, look, um, uh, look it's, uh, it's been a source of interest to all of us, hasn't it? Um, uh, I, I think that ultimately we'd say that blockchain is awesome technology, but I do think a lot of the crypto that currently exists today it isn't really um, an asset class that investors should be uh, trying to um, allocate too much capital to. Uh, I think, frankly, the, the, the reality is that a lot of the capital currently tied up in crypto is there for one reason only, and that's financial speculation. It's really about the fear of missing out and the desire to try and um, make further uh, strong speculative gains by chasing these coin prices higher. Uh, but I think that uh, as we we almost uh, I, I was pleased to see that um, uh, Musk changed his tune last week 
What we are starting to see, though, is increasing concern from a lot of investors that actually if you drive up coin prices, it's actually bad for the planet. Um, if you end up encouraging Bitcoin mining and that's driving up electricity consumption, uh, it's, it's not a great thing. So it's a, a bit ironic that some of the, uh, the, 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 the kids of today who care about the planet the most uh, actually engaging behavior that's actually doing some uh, environmental harm. But for me, uh, I think that... Right. Uh, Uh, We we can speak about crypto being mainstream, but I I just don't get it for now. All right, Mark, thanks so much uh, for joining us and sharing your thoughts there on fixed income, on crypto, and on ESG investing. Mark Dowding, Chief Investment Officer, Blue Bay Asset Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.